You'll remember that we looked at this passage right after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And then Peter is completely corrected about what the meaning of Jesus being the Christ is with, with the, these words, get behind me, Satan, for you have upon your mind the things of man, not the things of God. And we saw that as, as, as beautiful and appropriate and necessary and right as it is to confess Jesus as Christ, it is equally important that we say in the words Christ who Jesus really is. That we do not confess the Christ of the world or confess the Christ of our comfort or confess the Christ of convenience or confess the Christ that just gives us a hug and is our therapist. But that we confess the Christ of Scripture, the Christ whose mission was to come and die, the Christ who came to be rejected by the world, and the Christ who has the authority to correct us, to call us to repentance. And that is exactly what Jesus does as we get into this next passage. It continues right from an explanation of what it means to confess him as Christ. Now Jesus takes his disciples and all who want to follow him and explains to them the next most important question. After we know who he is as the Christ, the question is, what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to follow him? And here Jesus begins explaining to his disciples what they are to be as people who believe in Jesus. The, the, the words that, that Jesus gives us today are sober, and they're very different from the message of the good life or what we are supposed to pursue in the life in the world around us. There was a... Um, a book that became a movie uh, that is about 30 years old, and it's mostly the title that has always gripped me. It, it's called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Is anybody familiar with the book or the movie, The Unbearable Lightness of Being? It is a, it is a story about a group of characters who are living in uh, Prague after kind of the fall of, of communism, and they are living, trying to make sense of life, uh, having grown up in a system that has erased all meaning to, to life, all ideas of, of, of transcendence, all ideas of eternity. And so these characters are trying to find their meaning in, in sexual relationships, in, in uh, uh, just living free and living loose. And the idea is that they are living a life of lightness as opposed to weightiness or, or heaviness. And the, the author of the book describes this lightness versus this heaviness by, by saying these words. The heavier the burden, the closer our lives come to the earth, the more real and truthful they become. Conversely, the absolute absence of burden causes man to be lighter than air, to soar into heights, to take leave of the earth and his earthly being and become only half real, his movements as free as they are insignificant. What then shall we choose, weight or lightness? I submit to you that you are living in a world that is decades in to teaching you the lightness way of living. It is trying to, to treat life as bubbles, as experiences, as froth, as diversions, as plastic. Throw it away and get a new one. We live in a world that has been committed to the slight things. We have made an entire lifestyle of distraction. We have made an entire existence that is digital, that is ones and zeros, that has absolutely nothing that we can touch. And yet most of us find that as the primary place where we exist. 
We, we, we consume products and we live in a world that is disposable. We know everything that we have is going to be replaced. Our iPhones, as fancy as they are, are marked by a number that is meant to make it obsolete within 12 months. This is the world that we are living in. We are living in a world of momentariness. We are living in a world of just distract. We are living in a world that lacks weight. I mean, look at the things that we fight over and that we argue about and that we make our identity. They are flimsier and smaller and more tangential parts of existence than they have ever been. But the lightness of life is appealing. The lightness of life is always fun, is always entertaining, is always fast, is always exciting. The lightness of life is, 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 is escapism. And so there is always this appeal to, to go towards the lightness and to avoid the heaviness. Friends, does, does the lightness tempt you? Do you desire a life that is just easy and comfortable, that is just planning the next vacation? I mean, that's, that's great. That's kind of the life that is being sold. In fact, most of us have been told to work to retirement where the lightness of being is exactly what you were promised. The, 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 the new car, the vacation home, that every day is a Saturday. That is the beautiful life that is put in front of all of us. And so the lightness of being is constantly being presented as appealing, as enticing. And if we're honest, it's tempting. Right? But at the same time, I bet you also feel a bit frustrated by it. You feel a bit frustrated by the fact that nothing in this world feels real. Nothing in this world feels weighty. Nothing in this world feels like it matters. Nothing in this world seems like it means much. And so that is the frustrating side of the lightness of being. So what is the answer? What is the answer to a world that is frothed up with the lightness of being? How do, we, how do we make ourselves matter in a world like this? How do we make our moment in time have significance? We must choose the other way. In a world of lightness, we must choose a life of weight and substance. We must choose a life of gravity. And how do we do that? That is what Jesus is giving to his disciples, giving to us in this passage. The life of weight and substance is the life of discipleship. The life of discipleship. You see, discipleship is a life that invests in eternity that invests in what matters, that invests in the one thing that is worthy of our life, and that is a life that knows Jesus. So this passage is a passage about taking the weighty life, living the life of meaning, being someone whose feet are on the ground, being part of what is real. This is a sermon that is calling you to invest in the worthiness of Christ. That is the essence of discipleship. Discipleship is an investment, a lifelong investment in the worthiness of Christ. And in our passage, Jesus is going to give us three ways that we invest ourselves in the worthiness of Christ. So if you have our, our outline, you can start following along. The blanks are showing up now. Uh, otherwise, uh, we, we will be looking at three different points of, of how the disciple invests in the worthiness of Christ. The first that I want us to see, the first way 
is through accepting the cost. The first way that we invest in the worthiness of Christ is accepting the cost. So this passage, again, comes right after uh, Peter's confession and right after Jesus' rebuke. And so what Jesus is really doing in this passage is calling these disciples who have been following Jesus from miracle to miracle and teaching time to teaching time to finally look them in the eye and say, have you counted the cost of what it means to follow me? Have you counted the cost of being the disciple of one whose path is rejection and the cross? Because you must count the cost if you are going to be my disciple. And in saying this, in putting these words in front of the disciples, Jesus is rebuking one of the most popular heresies of probably every era of the church, but certainly one that we are imbibing in our present day, and that is the heresy of cheap faith. Jesus is rebuking the belief that you can have Jesus with cheap faith. You see, cheap faith is is built on this idea that we are saved by the free gift of God's grace. And they key in on the freeness of the gospel. And then they match the freeness of the gospel with another synonym for free, which is cheap. And so they take the preaching of the freeness of the gospel to mean that it is ultimately cheap. And the faith that is required to have this gospel is a cheap faith. You see, they are taking the freeness as an indication of the value of the gospel. And if the gospel is free, then I should put the least amount of myself in it to get it. And so cheap faith shows up in the countless people that you would describe as nominal believers, name only believers. As I was reading the book, The, the Great Dechurching, the vast majority of the of millions of people who have left the evangelical church in the last 20 years are really described as nominal believers. They are people who were in the church, but who were there with the smallest commitment to the truth of the church. And so as the culture changed the value of the truth of the church to the value of other things, many who are nominal disappear. Cheap faith is a, is a faith that has very little interest in, in repentance. Repentance is saying you uh, need to be saved, and if you need to be saved, you also probably need to change, right? Well, the, the cheap faith gospel says, yes, I want to be saved. I want a savior, but I don't want to do anything. And so it is a faith in Jesus that shows absolutely no walk with Jesus. Another example of of cheap faith is is the faith that shows up at at, at many funerals. Everybody at a funeral is going to heaven. That's the comfort that we give ourselves, that we we speak about the, the hope of heaven. But we never match it up with that person's testimony. We never match it up with, was that person truly committed to the gospel? But we just flood our ears with another person has been saved, another person has gone to heaven, even when that person may very well have no relationship or knowledge of the real Jesus. These are the examples of of cheap faith. And one of the most significant theologians of the last century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was uh, in Germany during the Second World War and actually spoke against the cheap grace of his generation under the threat of the, the, the 
execution of the Nazis describes this phenomenon. He says, cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Do do you see this heresy in the church today? You see, the problem is free grace does not mean anything about its cheapness. The reason that we preach free grace is Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason that we preach the free gift of the gospel is because it's not cheap. It's because if it were to be given at its cost, no one could afford it. The gospel is given freely because otherwise no one could be saved. What the gospel requires, the righteousness of God and the forgiveness of sins are so weighty and so precious and so priceless that if anyone is going to be saved, they are going to be saved because God gives that as a gift. The idea of, of the grace of the gospel is, is more akin to a, a large donation or a large grant. Imagine a, a rich person it bequeaths uh, his art collection to an art museum to display. The idea is that nobody could afford this art collection. But in receiving that beautiful art collection, the recipient is under the the obligation of making sure they treat that great gift with all the honor and all of the respect that it is due, right? To receive a great gift given freely requires us to treasure it. And so the gospel is freely offered, but we cannot receive it without giving our whole life to it. That is Jesus' response to cheap grace. You see, Jesus does not offer a cheap faith gospel. Now, look at verse 34. He looks at his, his disciples and the crowd and he says, if anyone would come after me. Now, look at that word anyone. Anyone means all are welcome, right? The, 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 the path that Jesus puts in front of us is a path given to all people. There are no exclusions. There are no disqualifications to those who the gospel is offered. Anyone is offered the path of discipleship. But at the same time, anyone declares that there is one way. Anyone who would want to come after me, all people are invited, but what it means is you come this way. It is a particular way. It is a specific way. So there are no exclusions, but all who come must come this way. And here Jesus connects his word faith to the act of following. In Jesus' presentation of what it means to be a believer in Jesus, he calls us a follower, one who follows me. In Jesus' mind, to say we believe in him is also to say he leads me. There is no gap between those two truths. I believe in him is equivalent to he leads me. And so in verse 34, Jesus lays out the entailments of discipleship by giving us three jarring commands. First, he says that anyone who would follow after me must deny himself. The first command is self-denial. 
anyone who wants to follow Jesus must be a person of self-denial. What does self-denial mean? Jesus is not talking about denying the self of certain things. He's not saying that the path of discipleship is the path of asceticism, where you deny yourself uh, extra food, or you deny yourself extra uh, gadgets and toys, or you, you deny yourself this particular vision of life. No, the self-denial that Jesus is talking about is more fundamental than that. He is not talking about denying the self of things. He is talking about denying the self. The self is what is being denied. You see, there is a tension between following Jesus and following yourself. And to follow Jesus means that you submit yourself to Jesus. You deny yourself for Jesus. Discipleship requires at the very first stone on the path that I deny myself. Self-denial is the DNA of discipleship. Now, it is popular in modern church life to use the words of affirmation or being an affirming church. And, I, and, and that is a, a, a call to, to express a certain uh, love and kindness towards people who have felt on the outside. And certainly here at this church, we want to express that anyone of the gospel, that anyone uh, is called to the gospel, and we are committed to being brokenhearted, to recognizing that every single one of us needs the gospel, needs the love of Jesus. But if we are to boil it down to whether we would call ourselves an affirming church for anybody, we must ultimately say no. And the reason is right here in verse 34. We are called to be a church of self-denial. And all of us are called to deny ourselves as we follow Jesus. And that is a hard word. It is a hard word that speaks to every single one of us. Who you are is not okay. It doesn't matter what the who you are is. It's not okay to make that self the center of who you are. The center of who you are must be Christ. And so the true presentation of the gospel is deny self to receive Christ. Second, Jesus says, take up our cross. Now that, that is a an image that had no cultural purchase. That was a disgusting phrase. The very mention of the cross was considered uh, an absolute taboo subject in the, the first century world. There was no goodness to the word cross. And yet Jesus takes this most offensive phrase and says, I want you to take up your cross. He is playing with the full potency of the image of crucifixion. It, it would be like him saying today, uh, walk yourself into the gas chamber. Take yourself to the electric chair. Put the lynching rope around your neck. These would be the offensive phrases that would be similar to what Jesus is saying here. When he says, take up your cross, he is saying that the path of discipleship must bear the cost of going through the gauntlet of shame and contempt. You must be at peace with the fact that the world will be at war with you. Because that is the path that Jesus was on. And so taking up our cross, we can expand upon that. 
simply means that there is a willingness to suffer anything for our relationship with Jesus. Anything being shame or ridicule or even physical pain. Jesus says, I want your following me to not pull up, to not stop at the moment that it costs you reputation or at the moment that it, it discomforts you. Discipleship must be committed to that cost. And then finally, the third term is, is simply the term following. The term following, follow me. There is, there is no version of biblical Christianity that calls Jesus my co-pilot. I know that, that that's been a popular like bumper sticker, Jesus is my co-pilot. Well, there's not two steering wheels on the path of discipleship. There is one captain. There is one person who is the pilot. One person who determines our path. And to be a disciple says, I go where you go. And the, the one that we follow, we know where his path goes, right? He is on the path to the cross, but he's also on the path to resurrection. So if we want to be on the path of resurrection, we must go through the path that he takes. This is then a, a call to perseverance. The disciple of, of Jesus is one who is not a fit and start disciple, but one who continues to follow, to continues to go. Now, at this point, th these words are heavy, and if you're measuring yourself against them, you, you would be like me and be like, I'm, I'm falling apart all the time. I am failing. I am not denying myself. I am not bearing my cross. I am... Uh, Bending under the pressure. But here is the encouragement. The disciples that Jesus was speaking of include Peter and, and, and John and, and all kinds of disciples who still have plenty of mistakes in front of them, plenty of errors in front of them, including the denial of Christ in front of them. But they are still considered disciples because discipleship is more about perseverance than it is about perfection. You see, we have to remind ourselves daily to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow him. And it is that daily getting up and recommitting and continuing to follow that is the mark of the disciple. It's not how many feet you got on the path of discipleship. It's that you're on the path of discipleship. Does that make sense? So what does the, the gospel require? The gospel requires our whole life. As Bonhoeffer said just a few pages after our last quote, he says, uh, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Jesus calls us to discipleship, he is calling for our whole life. And that is a call to death. Why do we do this, though? Why, why would we respond to stuck, such stern words? Well, it's why Camille said the beautiful words, he loves me. Discipleship says, he loves me. He loves me. He loves me. That's, that's what discipleship does. Discipleship is the calling to live a life that declares he is worthy. And only a life that denies self and only a life that picks up the cross and only a life that follows through the good and the bad can make that declaration. Because he is worthy of anything that may be on the path in front of you. And it is going through anything that says he is worthy.
So discipleship invests in the worthiness of Christ through accepting the cost. But second, it does it by cherishing our soul. By cherishing our soul. Look, look again at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus is laying in front of us two visions of life. And these are the two visions of life that every single one of us are being pulled one way or the other every moment. The visions are the mortal life or the eternal life. And Christ is going to share three indications that we should be putting all of our weight on the eternal life as opposed to the mortal life. Because the mortal life fails utterly fails to grasp the true value of your soul. So when he says that the, 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 these three indications of the true value of our soul, uh, it, it, we, we see three things. First, the world is not all there is. The first indication of the true value of our soul is that the world is not all there is. That's what Jesus wants us to grasp first. And he does this by attacking what we would say in, in our modern language, the lie of YOLO. You guys know YOLO? You, you only live once. You only live once, so make the best of every day. Spend up the credit card. Take the vacation. Cross off the bucket list. Have the experience. Uh, let it stay in Vegas. You only live once, right? The world in, in, in a YOLO mentality wants us to cling to it. It wants us to see it as, as our everything, as, as all that there is. That's what the world wants us to think. And it wants us in all of its glitz and all of its glamour and all of its froth to see it as the whole kit and caboodle. There is a, a show called Black Mirror. Does anybody watch Black Mirror? I don't know if I can recommend it. But anyways, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a show that kind of takes a, a, a prophetic and usually negative vision of what our technology, if it continues to take over our lives, is going to do to us. And so it has these kind of nightmarish pictures of what video games will do to us in the next 10 or 20 years. And well, anyways, there was an episode that came out a few years ago, and it's like the most popular episode in the whole series. It's called San Junipero. San Junipero. And it's a, it's a beautiful love story. Um, and it's, it's between these, these two women who are uh, in a, uh, uh, a, a 1980s kind of beach town. And they're just having the best time of their life. And we discover that they're actually uh, terminally ill, aged people who are being given the uh, ability through technology to transmit their consciousness into this alternative reality where they can live without impairment and they can just have the most fun that their hearts can possibly uh, imagine. And so it's this beautiful story of these two people and they fall in love and they have to make this decision of whether they're going to die a natural death or whether they're going to allow their consciousness to be loaded up into the machine and then they can spend forever in San Junipero with one another, Right? And there's this scene, this conversation about, uh, from one of the characters named Kelly talking about the fact that her husband uh, had this choice but chose to die, die the old-fashioned way. And, and the reason was that he still believed in that old-fashioned idea that there's life after death. These two main characters choose that this world is all there is, and they do not die. They, they go to San Junipero. I submit to you that San Junipero is the picture that this entire world that we live in is trying to enforce into you all the time. That this is all there is. Make the most of it. Sell it all. Spend it all. Do it all here because there's nothing but a grave. There's nothing past that. And so most people look at the story of San Junipero and they say, isn't that a beautiful love story? Love wins. But I have to ask you, is that a happy ending? That these two people 
never go on. They instead live in a world created entirely by their imagination. I mean, imagine if they lose heaven. San Junipero is not heaven. It's a made-up place. You see, the world is all there is, is the lie that the world wants you to believe to give all of yourself to the world. And it does not want you to contemplate the question, how do we know this is all there is? How do we know this is all there is? Because that's the most important question. If this world is not all there is, then you are absolutely the greatest loser to give all of yourself to this world. So the, third, the second indicator that Jesus gives us about the true value of the soul being eternal is the fact that the world cannot satisfy. The world cannot satisfy us. Look at verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The world is a bartering system. It is constantly trying to put something in front of you to ask you, sell out for this. And it reminds me uh, of of, uh, my favorite TV show, The Simpsons. Do we have that up there? Yeah. Bart Simpson, uh, the fourth grader, decided that $5 was about the value that he gave to his soul. So he sold his soul to Millhouse for $5, and he bought a bunch of little dinosaurs that when you put water on them, they, they get like three times as big. And that's what he sold his soul for. And the episode's kind of an interesting examination of, uh, is the soul real? Is it not real? And it, it, it kind of comes down on the, on the level that, yes, the soul is real, and so Bart has to get uh, his soul back somehow because life was, was suddenly no good. But here's, here's the point. What Bart does is what we are doing, or what the world is trying to do in front of you all the time. It wants you to sell your soul for this experience, for this affair, for this sin, for this success. There are all numbers of things that the world wants you to say, Make this the most important thing and give yourself to it. But the problem is, whatever we give ourselves to, whatever we say, this is going to be my identity, this is going to be myself, this is what I'm going to give my entire heart to, my soul to, whatever we give it to, immediately declares you your worth. Your worth becomes attached to whatever you sell yourself out to. This is why we live in a world full of lives that are impoverished. I mean, that's what addiction is. That that is a person who has said, I have sold myself out to this chemical experience. And their life has become defined by chasing that chemical experience until it is hollow and short. But you can see the same thing in people who commit to to vanity, who commit to their career. You can see it in people who commit to their family as their one and only thing. One of the saddest people you can meet are empty nesters who gave their entire soul to their kids because all of a sudden they have nothing to do and nothing to live for. You can sell out for family. We, we, we have a world where it just seems like we replace a, 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 a degree of joy for a degree of resentment as we get older and older. And resentment and cynicism are evidences that we have sold our soul too cheaply. There was a, a, an excerpt from a, a therapist uh, Uh, by the name of David Lodge, who writes about a patient he has who had two columns, a column of good things and and a column of bad things. And he shares this. He says, in the good column, he wrote, professionally successful, well off, good health, stable marriage, kids successfully launched in adult life, 
nice house, great car, as many holidays as I want. Under the bad column, he wrote just one thing. Feel unhappy most of the time. Feel unhappy most of the time. Why is that so common? Why is that story so common? Why is the thing that we are chasing and finding the most fleeting real happiness? Even as we're attaining more and more. The reason is that the world cannot satisfy. The world cannot satisfy because we were not made for this world. There's a profound verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 which says this. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. You see, there is this There is this yearning, there is this part of us that is not satisfied with anything less than eternity. And we can't get away from it. (coughs) And no number of things that this world can offer can satisfy eternity. I I was looking at my dog this week, and all he does is eat and sleep and play ball. But he is happy. He is a happy dog. You want to know why? Because my dog was made to be satisfied with eating, sleeping, and playing ball. That's what he was made for. And when those things are done, he is satisfied. But here's here's the thing. You are not satisfied by those things. You are not satisfied by anything you can find in this world. You have been designed with a satisfaction that cannot be found in this world. Because you are not designed for this world. And the greatest tragedy is all of us seeking to find our satisfaction from a place that was never made to give it. You're not a dog. You're an image bearer of God. And God says, until you reflect my image, you will not be satisfied. So the world cannot satisfy. The third indicator that Jesus shares that the value of the soul is eternal is that the world is powerless to save. Look at verse 37, a piercing question. For what can a man give in return for his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Every single one of us will face that question somewhere because the diagnosis is going to come. The end is going to knock. The tragedy will happen to you. And the question that will stand in front of you is, what can I give to stop this? What can I give to stay alive? And every single one of us will find out there is nothing. There is nothing. I I think of Steve Jobs, one of the richest men in the world, most powerful, imaginative person in the world. He came down with pancreatic cancer. He had enough money to personally have his own human genome mapped. He paid all the money he had to figure out what medicine had never been able to do for himself. And yet, He still did not get out of this world alive. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? There is nothing in this world that has the power to save us. The world wants us to think it can do anything, but when death comes, it is answerless. And so, beloved, our soul cannot be given to someone who has no answer for the grave. And that's what the world wants. They say, choose us. But look, the only one who has conquered death says, this world cannot save you. Only Christ is able to honor the value of our soul. He alone can satisfy it and secure it eternally. 
we do well to, to dwell upon the, the missionary who was killed at a very young age, Jim Elliott, who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, we give our soul to Christ alone because he is worthy. So discipleship invests in the worthiness of Christ through cherishing our soul, finally, through treasuring his glory. Uh, Look now at the last verse, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That verse seems so harsh. It's like Jesus says, if you don't act this way, I'll be ashamed of you. You can read it as a quid pro quo. You have to suffer this if you want my honor here. Is that what this verse is ultimately about? No, we know Jesus. Jesus is not putting in front of us a, a quid pro quo. Rather, he is calling us to examine our deepest desire. He wants us to look into our heart and answer the question, what is your soul made for? What is your soul made for? And the answer to that, your soul is made for glory. Your soul is made for glory, i.e., it is made for the greatest acceptance. It is made for for splendor. It is made to marvel. And so the question every person in this world deals with is, where are you going to look for glory? And there are two options. There's the here and now, and there's eternity. And in the here and now, there are lots of glory givers. They will give you glory through approval or success or pleasure or happiness or inclusion. They will give you what you want. The world will give you what you want. But Jesus warns us that the world that gives you what you want is also a sinful and adulterous people. Which is to say the world will do exactly what the devil did in the third temptation to Jesus. It will offer you whatever you want in the world. All it will cost you is to bow your knee to it. You see, the world's esteem will push against your faith. It will push it out. When I was pursuing my Ph.D., there's this, there's this currency that you all want in a PhD, which is called academic respectability. You want academic respectability. You want people to want to read your stuff. You want people to say, this guy's the smartest guy in the room. This guy's on top. Here's the thing about academic respectability. The people that give that academic respectability out are usually the people who want to celebrate naturalism and want to celebrate rationalism. And so especially in the, in the religious department, academic respectability would require spending your time on a subject that undermined the faith as opposed to promoted the faith. You see, you have to give up that glory that the world wants to give you because usually underneath that glory is a call to compromise. But here is an important examination question. Do you know where the world is working against your faith? Do you know where the battle is? Do you know where the glory that is being dangled in front of you is? Do you recognize this fight? What glory in this world most tempts you? We need to know the answer to that question because I assure you, the fight is there. How do we stand? 
Jesus directs us to look at real glory. He says, look at me who will come with the glory of my Father and with the holy angels. The glory that Jesus promises is beyond compare and without end. Listen to this quality of of the glory that comes in the kingdom to come. Uh, uh, Psalm uh, 1611 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul described it this way. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Here we see the answer to the lightness of being. It is to invest ourselves in the glory of Jesus. Because the glory of Jesus is the weight of that is beyond all compare, that will make every possible suffering and lack in this world seem absolutely impossible to remember by comparison. Beloved, only Christ can give us the glory that we desire. Only Christ can give us the glory our soul pursues. And so we uh, delay gratification in this age because... He is worthy. He is worthy. I want to end with a short parable. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Beloved, invest your life in the worthiness of Christ. Do that by accepting the cost, by cherishing your soul, and by treasuring his glory. You will do that when you recognize that Jesus is the pearl of great price, worthy of selling everything for it. Have you found him as your pearl? If you have found him as your pearl, You receive him in these words, follow me.